I think everybody enjoys receiving gifts. And I was thinking about in the car this morning on the way here, it's November. Can you? It's been the longest year and the shortest year. I don't know which way to look at it. <laughs> it's been something. Like, here we are in November. It's the time of the year when, when uh, the rhythms of the seasons kind of start tracking toward uh, Thanksgiving and holidays and gift giving and things like that. And it, we're in a, a spot in the book of Acts where, where Peter is going to describe to this audience this great gift that keeps on giving. Uh, there were commercials that talk about you can give the gift that keeps on giving. I can't remember what it was, so I guess it wasn't a very good commercial because I can't remember what exactly that was. Probably because I couldn't afford it is what it probably was ultimately about. But here is a picture of what would be truly something that keeps giving. Something of the most important gift that you could have. In in Acts chapter 2, we're we're told in the very first words, uh, the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, you, you probably need to step back and just even consider why would this great event happen on the day of Pentecost, of all the days of the year uh, that you could possibly have. You do have three different days in the year when the, the Jewish males would all need to come to Jerusalem to present themselves as was required by the law of Moses. Pentecost was one of those days. But Pentecost had a very important meaning. And if you went back into the law of Moses and tried to read in your Old Testaments for Pentecost, you're not going to find uh, that word. And yet it was the, the Feast of Weeks. And what the Feast of Weeks ultimately was about was a giving of thanks to God for the beginning harvest that had come in. It wasn't the the whole of the harvest. It was just the, the front end of it, the initial uh, reaping in and, and the joy and thanksgiving to God because there was a harvest by which we could praise God and then also a hopeful prayer to God that the rest of the harvest would be able to come in safely. And so that was its its primary emphasis. Pentecost, Feast of Weeks was about a thanksgiving time. It was a time of harvest, a time of recognizing God's blessings upon his people. Not only was it tied to that, a secondary image behind the Pentecost was that it was tied to the giving of the covenant. Now, it's not hard to see why that it began to be something that the Jews understood. If you think about the Exodus and that first Passover where they leave Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai and receive the law, they believe that that was about the same amount of time, that 50-day period when you would have had Pentecost essentially when they came to Mount Sinai and God gave them the law. And so when you're in the first century and you speak of Pentecost, you're not only speaking about the blessings of God giving in His harvest to His people, but you are also thinking about covenant renewal. You are remembering that 50 days after the Passover was the law, that God had distributed the law to to the people. And that would then be something that would be important to them. And I think that's an important backdrop to why of all days this event would happen as it did. Why this great event 
would occur ultimately on Pentecost. And then something amazing happens in verse 2. It says, suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Now, uh, if you've decided from time to time living here to stay in your home when a hurricane came, you can probably get a sense of what that sound was probably like. I can certainly visualize the roar when you hear that wind coming and the hurricane passes through and it is just a loud sound that is somewhat terrifying to hear all of that going on. And you'll notice that this is no small sound. Not only does it say the sound was like a mighty rushing wind, but it says it fills the entire house where they are sitting. If you fill the room with sound, you are talking about something being extremely loud. In fact, it's so loud that we are told later on in verse 6 that the sound at this sound, this multitude of people in Jerusalem even come to try to find out what's going on. And so we have this loud roaring sound that is filling the house and it is causing ultimately a disturbance uh, within Jerusalem that's going to cause people to come and try to determine exactly what's happening. And not only does that happen, you see uh, in verse 3 that we are told that there are these divided tongues and they are like fire, they look like fire resting upon uh, each one of them and they are able to speak in other languages as the Spirit gives them utterance. What you have ultimately is God coming down to have this loud sound and this scene of fire is very common for God when He arrives. It's not too far away from Mount Sinai with the the loud sound that happened when God came there. And you have the fire and the smoke and the mountain burning. Even the prophets when they speak of God's arrival often speak of Him coming in wind and coming in fire. And so here we see the same kind of imagery as the, the Spirit arrives and it lands on the apostles and they now are able to speak in other languages. And as you read those first four verses, you can't help but wonder, well, what does all of that ultimately mean? And you might even read it and be somewhat confused. The the good news is, is that everybody else was confused by this too. You notice in verse 5, it says that, that everyone who's in Jerusalem, these devout men from every nation under heaven, verse 6, at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. There's confusion now going on in Jerusalem as they desire to understand what was that sound and why are these 12 men now able to speak in languages that we're able to understand, especially because they know who these men are. You'll notice in verse 7, they're amazed and astonished and saying, are these not all Galileans? These are not people from all over the Roman Empire who are able to speak in all of these different languages that they would be like, oh yeah, that's normal. He's been living over there for a long time and he's got the language down. They're stunned by what these 12 apostles are able to do. They hear their own language. Verse 8, how is it 
that we hear each of us in our own native language. And notice the long listing from verses 9, 10, and 11 of all the different regions and all the different areas by which all of these people are coming. Notice what they say in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So here's what the apostles are doing. They're standing up and they are proclaiming the mighty works of God. And they were amazed and perplexed. In verse 12, here's their question. It's the question you just had. What does this mean? What is going on? Why did this all happen? Why are they speaking like this? Why this massive event? What is supposed to be understood by this? Ironically enough, and certainly no surprise in verse 13, there's going to be people who are going to mock this and say, oh no, this isn't anything. They're simply drunk. They they don't, don't believe anything they're saying. They're just simply out of their minds. This gives now Peter the opportunity to explain. This is ultimately what this sermon, that if you've grown up in the pews, you've read Acts chapter 2 many, many times, but this quote first sermon is ultimately Peter explaining, here's what's happening, here's why this is important, and most important, here's what this means to you. Here, this audience who's sitting there as well as to us, now 2,000 years later. Notice that Peter begins with his explanation and he stands up and he addresses them and he just starts off in verse 15 by by saying, obviously we're not drunk. There's two good reasons why that's not true. One, drunk people don't speak in other people's languages. That's obviously not a reasonable answer as to what is happening here. Furthermore, it's nine in the morning, and so that is not a reasonable answer either. You can have these mockers. There will always be mockers of God, but that is not what is going on. Instead, what Peter initiates in this lesson is verse 16. He just says, This is what Joel spoke about. This is the fulfillment of what God had promised in the past. Ultimately, this is what the world has been waiting for. I I almost had that as that title for the sermon was what the world has been waiting for, parenthesis, but didn't know it, is exactly what Peter's going to explain. This is what the whole world's been waiting for. This is what God has been promising through all of the prophets. And he uses Joel as the place to show that this is ultimately what God had been looking for. You'll notice in verse 17 where he says, here's what Joel said. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. Very important opening. Where he starts in the prophecy of Joel is by saying, Joel promised that the spirit was going to come on all people in fact he really underscores it the way he says it it will be poured out verse 17 on all flesh your sons and your daughters your young men your old men your male servants your female servants the point that he's making is 
It's everybody without regard of class or gender or distinction. It didn't matter if you're a male or female servant. It didn't matter if you're wealthy and powerful. It didn't matter who you are. There's the promise that Joel had made. My spirit will be poured out on everyone, all people, all flesh. So that's his his start point is something is being offered here for all people. And then tied closely with that in verses 17 and 18, as you'll notice that miraculous events are tied to it, prophesying. Visions, dreaming dreams are all tied to this. So Joel is giving this picture that the Spirit's going to come. It's going to be poured out on all flesh and miracles are going to be accompanied with it that you're going to see these things happen. And that's what what Peter stands up and says. It's not that we're drunk. It's not that something crazy has just happened. This is what Joel said was going to happen. The Spirit's going to be poured out. And there were going to be miracles that were going to happen. And one miracle that we're seeing right here at the moment that Peter is explaining is that how are they able to speak in languages that we all understand? That's what they're asking. These are Galileans. How is it possible that they're doing what they're doing? And his answer is not, well, we got well trained one, one day and you didn't know it. No, it's the Spirit. This is God's promise. This is indicating something massive has taken place. But there's also something very important tied with it. Look at verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. If we had time, we'd go back and look at all the other prophets who use this kind of language. When you read the language of sun turning to darkness, moon turning to blood, stars falling from the sky, Isaiah uses as other prophets do as well, that always means judgment. It is always bad. If I were to tell you, you're going to go outside and the sun is going to be dark and never shine again, you're going to go, that's really bad. That's, that's judgment. That's, that's God's judgment that's coming. It's an image of doom that is arriving. Which, remember, that is what John had indicated back in Acts 1 when Jesus is referring to what John was proclaiming. John the baptizer ran around saying, I baptize with water. There's one after me who's mightier than I. And he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. But don't forget there was more. And baptism of fire. We talked about there was a positive and there was a negative. And the baptism of fire is judgment. Baptism of the Holy Spirit of the blessings of God. And so here is Peter confirming that is here is the Spirit being poured out. And there's also coming with it judgment. The sun will be turned to darkness. The moon will be turned to blood before the great day of the Lord comes. If we weren't sure about that, verse 21 clears it all up because he finishes the quotation by saying, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You had to speak of judgment a moment ago to make the next breath be, call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Verses 19 and 20 were bad. Blood, fire, smoke, doom, lights out, it's over. However... 
Whoever calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved from this judgment. That is the sum total of the quotation that Peter wants to use. So here is the audience. What does this mean? Why is this happening? And Peter's start point is, this is what we've been waiting for. And this is what Jesus talked about. And this is what John talked about. And this is what God talked about with all of the prophets. A day was coming when the Spirit was going to be poured out. And a day was coming where there was going to be judgment. And now Peter wants to go further and explain why this is so important. Because this ultimately has everything to do with Jesus. And you'll notice that's where he goes. In verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him with my lawless hands. God God raising him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. Notice after quoting Joel, he immediately goes to this is Jesus. This is the work of Christ. Now, in saying this, I think it is powerful because here he is Peter saying, You know that Jesus was crucified. You know the miracles He did. You know what was accomplished. You know what happened in the lifetime of Jesus. You know what happened 50 days earlier in Jerusalem. And then for Him to say in verse 24, that God raised Him up. And I want you to think about why He says Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 24, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. That is a stunning thing to say. You killed him. God raised him. And think about all the answers that could have been given as to why Jesus rose from the dead. There's a lot. But here's the one that Peter says, death can't hold him. It's not possible. That is who Jesus is. That's how powerful Jesus is. You put him to death. But he rose from the dead because it's not possible for death to contain him. It is not possible for him to stay in a tomb. It is not possible. And that's what the rest of his quotation is he goes to quote from psalm 16 and uses david here and the quotation that is just simply the point it's not possible for jesus to remain in the grave it's just not going to happen it cannot be and thus he makes the point in verse verse 29 that that david died and was buried but he was speaking about christ in verse 30 and 31 verse 32 this jesus god raised up And we are all witnesses. We saw it. We talked about in Acts 1, the eyewitness testimony that we have. 
These men saw Jesus risen from the dead. And Peter just stands up and says, what has happened here in this moment and the events that have transpired are ultimately the work of Jesus. And let me prove it to you that it was the work of Jesus. He couldn't stay in the grave. Yes, you crucified him, but death could not hold him. It was impossible for that to happen. And the scriptures even predict that impossibility that he would raise from the dead. And now Peter says, we are ultimately witnesses of that event. Now, verse 33 is really the key. All of this funneling to this big point. Verse 33. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is the big explanation to what is happening as he tries to boil all of this down and show ultimately that this was the work of Jesus. Now remember when we started the very book, the beginning of the book of Acts, we noted that it said that Luke was writing to Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach with the implication there must be more. This is like the next layer of what else did Jesus do? And notice that's where Peter goes here. He says, Jesus being exalted at God's right hand and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit has poured this out which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is, I think, where we take a step back and ask ourselves, why all of this is happening? Why do we have all of these signs? Why do we have everybody seeing and hearing all of these events? Why the sound of the mighty rushing wind? Why the the divided tongues that look as a fire? Why are the apostles speaking in different languages? Why not just have Peter stand up and say, Hey everybody, Jesus rose from the dead and He's on the throne. Why do we have all this? That's what Peter is trying to explain in this whole of the sermon and why he's quoting from Joel and why he's using the words of David is to try to help everybody understand. Here's what's happened. These events that you in Jerusalem have come and are witnessing are the proof that Jesus is exalted at God's right hand. And that Jesus is alive, that he has received the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured these things out that you are now seeing and hearing. Now, let's push that explanation a little bit further and really think about why this would be so necessary. Because if we leave it right there, it's still ultimately not enough. Here's the miracles. The miracles prove Jesus rose from the dead. But why is that necessary? Why do we have to go through all this? Why can't we just get to verse 38? Why do we need all of this right here? Because it's signifying something incredibly important. We've noted in in our study, as we've talked about back in Acts 1, that Jesus has told His apostles about this 
promise of the Father. And remember what the Old Testament prophets were proclaiming would happen when the Spirit is poured out. They said when the Spirit is poured out, it's going to be restoration. It's going to be renewal. It's going to be reconciliation. It's going to be the restoration of God's kingdom. It's going to be the restoration of God's blessings. It's going to be the restoration of God's covenant. God is going to turn His face again toward His people and pour out mercy and grace. The, the prophets are just proclaiming this over and over again about when the Spirit comes, it will be reversal. Remember we were in Isaiah and we saw this desolate land will become a fruitful field. with blessings of God. God just extended everywhere. Why do we need all of this happening in Acts 2? Because none of what was promised was visible. How do we see that Jesus has ascended and is sitting on the throne? Peter, you say so. And how do we see That now God has initiated a new covenant to bring all people in. Or how do we see that now the kingdom has arrived and all who hear the message are going to be able to belong to it? Or how do we see that God is now willing to bestow his blessings upon all flesh and any who would come to him? Or how do we see that God has turned His face back toward His people and is willing to offer mercy and grace? What are the tangible things to know that this is the new reality that God has created? None of those things are visible. That's why Joel prophesied the way he did. Is the miraculous event was to prove That all of those things were true. That's what the apostles are doing. That's why Peter's quoting. Is that which you are seeing and hearing, this sound that you heard and what brought you here, and us being able to speak in different languages, is confirmation of these truths. God's kingdom has come. Forgiveness of sins is available. You can belong as the people of God. You can receive mercy and grace. God's blessings are being extended to you. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that Jesus is on the throne? And how do we know that all this is available? Peter is saying, did you hear us? We're talking in these languages. Which, friends, that was always the point of miracles. The point of miracles always was to confirm what the miracle worker was saying. They're saying something that can't be proven. So how do we prove it? Let me show you a miracle so that you'll understand this truth. Even Jesus did that. You might remember there was this uh, great little incident with Jesus where there was this paralyzed man. And he tells him to take up his bed and walk. And they flip out because, of course, it's the Sabbath. And how, how dare you do all that? And who do you think you are? And Jesus says, what's easier to do? Tell him to take up his bed and walk or to say, I've forgiven your sins. You see, one thing you can't see. How can I prove to you that this man's sins are forgiven? You can't see that. So he says, I did the harder thing. Take up your bed and walk. <laughs> that proves it. That shows it. That was Jesus right that he'd forgiven his sins. Yep, that proves it. That was always what miracles were about. That's why Joel prophesies as he does. 
And that's what Peter is doing right here is giving this massive explanation that what this event proves is that the kingdom of God is now open. And you can be citizens of the kingdom of God and you can enjoy blessings from God and you can enjoy favor with God. You can have relationship with God again. You can be a child of God. You can enjoy all that comes with entering into His kingdom, His reign, His rule. You now have that opportunity. Jesus is on the throne and has brought that about. Well, Peter, how do we know? Because a miraculous event has happened. That's how we know. And that's why you get the response that the people give in verse 37. Notice in verse 37, they are cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do? I want you to notice there are two keys here for desiring God. I think it's very important to notice their response that happens here. One, they're convicted by what is said. When Peter says all this, the people don't go, well, that sounds boring. No, they're like, wow, we crucified the one who came to restore God's blessings to us, to restore God's covenant to us, to restore God's kingdom to us so that God's mercy would flow toward us. We killed that person. What should we do? One... They're convicted by what was proclaimed and they want to do something about it. That's the essence of a heart that desires God. When the word is told, it doesn't bounce off the heart. You care. It hits you. And two, after it hits you, you don't go, well, that was fascinating. What do I do about that? What next? Peter, what are we supposed to do with this? The offer of forgiveness is here. The offer of the Spirit is here. All that was enabled with that, that we could belong to the kingdom of God and enjoy the blessings of God. What should we do then to be able to enjoy this? I want you to consider that when you come to verse 38, Peter could have very well said, I already told you. (laughs) Right? What did we read back in verse 21? He said, the Spirit's going to be poured out on all flesh and there's going to be judgment that comes with it. Blood, fire, and smoke, sun turned to darkness. Moon will not give its light. So what are you supposed to do? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice Peter does not stand up and say, I thought I already told you this. You weren't listening to to me very well. Let me start that sermon again. Sometimes I feel that. Let's just start that again. So I I didn't do a good job explaining myself. (laughs) He doesn't say, I must not have really made, made my point clear. Please think about this for a minute. Call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? If I told you the only way you can be saved is that you're going to call on God's name. I'd step back and go, well, what am I supposed to do? Does that mean say his name? Lord, did I just call on him? What does that mean? 
That's what they're asking. Okay, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. What does that look like? How do I call on His name? What is ultimately behind that? What is that going to look like as I try to respond? Because that's way too vague. Call the name of the Lord. Okay. Does that mean say His name? Does that mean do something? What are you asking me to do? That's why they ask it. They, they heard the sermon. What, do you, what are we supposed to do? How do we call on the name of the Lord? Verse 38, Peter tells them, here's what you would do then. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. I want you to listen to what Peter is ultimately telling them. First picture that he gives them. First picture is that of repentance. We don't use that word much today. You tell somebody to repent. I don't know. For me, the the only visual I get is a guy with a sandwich board on the street that says something like that, you know, from the movies. We don't use repent. We don't use that word. Repentance is is an idea that you're, you're turning your mind decisively toward God and away from the sinful things you were doing. You're making this this change of moment of how you live your life, change in how you think, change in your direction. This is this decisive moment where now you are bending yourself toward God and are going to live for God and not for self. That's, that's the idea of repentance. That's why when you go through the book of Acts, you'll see repent all over the place, constantly calling people. You have to turn toward God. It is saying, I'm going to turn myself toward the will of God. No longer toward my desires, my wants, my life, my way. And he also goes further with that in speaking about being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Lord willing, next Sunday, I'm going to talk more about that idea. But I want you to see that together, repent and be baptized would result in two important things. Number one, he says in verse 38, he says, you will have the forgiveness of sins. How important that would be after Peter has just proclaimed to them, You rejected the Son of God. You crucified Him. You were the ones that said you didn't want Him. But forgiveness of sins is being offered. And not only is forgiveness of sins being offered, we should never stop the reading right there. It also says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice it is described as the promise in verse 39. It is a promise for you. It is a promise for your children, verse 39. It is a promise for all who are far off. Gentiles, everybody, anybody, as many as the Lord will call, our God will call to Himself. Here is this promise, this gift of the Holy Spirit. If you repent and are baptized, He says, here's what's being offered to you. Sins are forgiven. And the gift of the Holy Spirit that is promised to you, promised to your children, promised to those who are afar off. Now let's step back. What was promised? 
What is this promise? What is this gift of the Holy Spirit? It can be terribly confusing. What is being offered right here? But remember, as we've been looking at not only the prophets, we've been looking at what John the baptizer has said. We've also been looking at what Jesus has said. And we've also now seen what the apostles are saying. Here's the gift that is being offered to you. You can be part of the kingdom of God. You can enjoy the blessings of God. You can be a child of God. You can belong to this saving covenant. You can have mercy and grace extended to you. This is what was being promised by the prophets. Remember, in the days of like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all those prophets... The people were far from God. They didn't care about God anymore. They thought they were fine with God, but they weren't. God came to them with prophets and they didn't listen. And He convicted them of their sin. He took them off the land. And He started telling them promises. One day, restoration is going to happen. One day I will have a people. One day I'll have a people who will belong to me and they will be my children and I will be their God. One day I will have a people who will be faithful to me. One day I will have a people that care for me, who have a heart for me, who will have new hearts, that will have clean hearts, that will desire me with all of their heart. One day I'm going to have a people who are not just simply there, but they will be a people who love the Lord their God with all of their heart. And I'm going to allow them to be in a relationship with me. That's what the the prophets are proclaiming. One day there's going to be a people who are going to belong to God and enjoy all that God has to offer. That was the promise. And notice Peter comes along and says, the access to this promise is now. Well, how do we know, Peter, that it's now? Because of all the miracles that were performed. That now the doors of the kingdom of God are open. And you can be a citizen of the kingdom of God. You can have the blessings of God. You can be a child of God. You can have the mercy of God. You can have forgiveness of sins. You can have that gift. That is ultimately the gift that keeps on giving. The best gift that you could ever receive in this life is to be called a child of God. To belong in His family. To be able to say of God, He is your Father. To be able to have God say of you, You are my child and I am not ashamed of you. And I will be with you and I will forgive your sins. And you will be in eternity with me one day. And you can enjoy all of my blessings and have hope in me. Because I am here for you. That is what Israel was waiting for was to be able to have all of that relationship restored. And what Peter does is he comes along and says, guess what? You want to know why we did this on Pentecost? Because remember, Pentecost was just the beginning of the harvest. It was just the start point with a hope 
for the rest of the harvest to come in. And so he says, it's to you, them right there listening. But it's also of a bigger harvest to come. Your children. And to those who are afar off. And ultimately, as long as God wants the world to keep spinning, as many as God will call to himself. What I want us to see is what is being offered is not merely forgiveness of sins. That is just the tip of the iceberg. To read Acts 2 and to hear Peter's sermon and simply come away with, my sins are forgiven, that's wonderful, but you only got the appetizer. The main course is, you belong as a child of God. You have a relationship with God. If you will turn from your sins and submit your life to Christ, and you will have your sins washed away, it's not just simply sins, but relationship. The best thing you could ever happen in this life is God to be your Father and for you to be His child. It's nothing better. And no one can take it away from you. And no one can change that. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a stunning gift that you had promised a long time ago through your prophets. God, thank you for being so patient, so loving, so merciful, and so desiring to have a people that you would offer your son and raise him from the dead and seat him at your right hand so that we could enter into your kingdom to be part of your family to enjoy blessings of being your children, to be able to call you our Father, to be able to speak to you in prayer as we do right now, to be able to worship you and you receive our worship, for you to bless us the way you do, for you to forgive us of our sins, for you to not turn your back upon us, for you to be faithful to us, for you to give us this covenant that allows for us to be forgiven, to give us a covenant that allows us to enjoy relationship with you. God, thank you for this gift. God, we pray that we would never take it for granted, never lessen its importance. And Lord, may we pray that we would live up to the calling to which you've given us. Lord, strengthen us to live as your children. Strengthen us to live as citizens of your kingdom. Strengthen us to put our hope in you. Strengthen us to see the power of who you are and that we would trust you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. In a moment, we're going to sing an invitation song. But we want to make the offer to you.
The offer that Peter made is the offer that continues forward. Turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing gift. To be able to enjoy that. To enjoy being part of God's family. Something that you would never regret. And so important. As I said, Lord willing, we're going to talk more about the concept of baptism next week. But if you understand that you need to give your life to Jesus today, and we can help you in that response, would you let one of us know afterward? We'd be happy to talk to you about that. And uh, if you want to come forward, you can do that as well. Won't you come while we stand, while we sing?